Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 26 for the second quarter of March 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is Richard Hoagland's 19.5 degrees. I call this part one, not because the next episode will be on another Hoagland-specific claim, but because one in the future will be. Well, actually, many, many future episodes will be about various claims by Richard Hoagland. Take a tetrahedron, which is a four-sided solid made of four equilateral triangles, also known as a true or regular pyramid, and put it in a sphere, such that each point of the pyramid touches the inside surface of the sphere. Draw a straight line through the center of the sphere, such that one end of the line intersects a point of the pyramid. Think of this line as the polar or spin axis, and now orient it in your mind so that the line that goes through the pyramid point is straight down. Now draw a line through the circle's equator. Now, if you take the angle between the equator, the center of the sphere, and one of the three non-pole points of the pyramid, you get 19.5 degrees. That's the magic of Richard C. Hoagland's hyperbolic geometry and all of the claims of importance of the 19.5 degrees latitude that I'll be talking about in this episode. And, since that was an incredibly visual explanation, I'll have an image in the show notes to try to help you along. Richard C. Hoagland says a lot of stuff. Almost everything he says sounds non-PG-rated crazy. Over the decades, he's built up a vast conspiracy-laden mythology about the universe, how it supposedly works, and why things are the way that they are. The whole 19.5 degrees is an important number stems from his hyperdimensional physics mythos, something I won't go into in this episode. But the short, short, short version is that Hoagland and his followers are the only ones who believe in it, and the only ones who offer uncontrolled and uncalibrated data that supposedly back it up. Another reason that I won't be going into it in this episode is because it's fairly incomprehensible, nonsensical, and made up. And I say that in an unbiased way, of course. Suffice to say, I quote, A tenant of these views holds that the vast amounts of energy originating from dimensions we cannot perceive are available at latitudes 19.5 degrees both south and north on the sun and every planet in the solar system. Now as to why 19.5 degrees, it's because of that whole tetrahedron and a sphere thing that I tried to explain. As to why he came up with that instead of something like a cube or a dodecahedron, I don't know. As to why he came up with this whole thing in the first place, deep down in his heart of hearts, I can only speculate that it sounded kind of complicated and geometrical, so he went with it. But that's besides the point here. In other words, the root idea is that Hoagland and his followers believe that 19.5 degrees latitude on everybody in the solar system is where we have the biggest, bestest, scariest, craziest, powerfulest, whateverest feature. Hoagland provides a list on his website that I'll link to and copy in the show notes for this episode. 
This is something that's easily tested, one might think, so let's take a tour through the solar system. A claim that you won't find directly on the table that I just mentioned from Richard, but that I'm starting with because it has to do with the sun, is that the sun at 19.5 degrees latitude, north and south, is where sunspots originate. Sunspots are made of tangled magnetic fields that are often associated with solar flares and other activity. What the data show, however, and I'll link to it on the website, are that sunspots generally are anywhere from plus or minus 30 degrees latitude towards the equator. If you ramp up from the solar minimum to solar maximum, the sunspots start out at an average location of about plus or minus 25 degrees latitude. As you go down from solar maximum to solar minimum, they migrate equatorward to an average latitude of about plus or minus 5 degrees. 25 and 5 are not 19.5. Yes, there are 5s in the number, but that's not 19.5. Even during solar maximum, when there are the most sunspots, and so the sun is most energetic, the latitude range of the spots is between 10 and 25 degrees latitude, not even averaging to 19.5, and definitely not being at exactly 19.5 degrees. So, we've started out with a swing and a miss. I couldn't find any claims about Mercury, so we'll skip that and move on to Venus. On Venus, the next planet out from the Sun, Hoagland points to Alta Regio and Beta Regio, the first at 19.5 degrees north, and the second at 25 degrees south. He says that these are both, and I quote, current volcanic regions. Now, as a bit of trivia, regio, or regions, on Venus are large areas marked by reflectivity or color distinctions from surrounding areas, or they're just a generic large geographic area. Note, large geographic area. They're named for giantesses and titanesses, although two are named after the first Greek letters of the alphabet, alpha and beta. From what I could find, Alta was a Norse giantess, the mother of Heimdall, whom kept watch near the Bifrost for the start of Ragnarok. Anyway, you'll note that there is not a volcano in the definition of a regio. And according to the USGS Gazetteer, or Gazetteer something, list of planetary nomenclature, Alta Regio is centered at 9.2 degrees north latitude, though it's over 3,000 kilometers across. Beta Regio is centered at 25.3 degrees north latitude, not south, and it's 3,000 kilometers across, as in about the size of the United States. So to say that these features are at 19.5 degrees is kind of like me saying that Antarctica is at the South Pole. It's true, but it's not paying any attention to the feature's actual extent nor its true center. As to whether these are current volcanic regions, I could find absolutely nothing to support this claim, not the least reason being that there is no evidence whatsoever of current ongoing volcanic activity on Venus. I couldn't even find information that these are volcanoes, though it's not completely unlikely that they're sort of volcanic in origin since most of Venus' surface has been sculpted by volcanic processes. Now, also, 
we do have names for volcanoes on Venus. Those would be montes, as in mountains, possibly of volcanic origin, or tholai, or possibly even patera, not regios. Moving on to Mars, we're going to bypass Earth for now. In Richard's table, the only entry for Mars is the volcano Olympus Mons, there's that Mons moniker, which he says is centered at 19.3 degrees north, and it's the largest shield volcano. Truth be told, Olympus Mons is the tallest volcano in the solar system, rising somewhere around 22 kilometers above the surrounding plains, but Alba Patera, Patera, not Reggio, to the northeast is actually the most voluminous and broadest volcano in the solar system that we know of. Similar to the Regios on Venus, Olympus Mons is around 650 kilometers in diameter. So, not similar as in 3,000, but similar as in it's really big. It starts out at about 23.5 degrees north, and it goes south to about 13.5 degrees north. So, it's about 10 degrees in extent. It's, it's big. That means, though, that the average is at 18.5 degrees north. Not 19.5 degrees north, not 19.3 degrees north, but 18.5 degrees north. Olympus Mons also has several volcanoes near its peak, and the calderas have an, a latitude range of 17.8 degrees to 18.8 degrees, so they're fairly centered on the volcano. Again, not 19.5, not even Richard's 19.3. But if we want to talk big volcanoes, Olympus Mons sits near the edge of the vast, and I do mean vast, Tharsis region of Mars, which, when you get kind of right down to it, Tharsis is like one giant single shield volcano that covers 25% of the planet. It's also centered at the equator, not 19.5. Now, before my boss actually rips into me on this one, Tharsis is not in itself a volcano. It's a bulge on Mars that was likely caused by a single large mantle plume, kind of like the Hawaiian hotspot volcanoes on Earth, and this bulge or mantle plume was manifest by many smaller volcanoes, smaller being relative, such as Olympus Mons. There are also 23 other major volcanoes on the planet, I know this because I worked on them and age-dated them for a project a few years ago. None of them are at 19.5 degrees north nor south. And now, just for fun, Hoagland makes much ado about the face on Mars, which will be discussed on another episode. Surely that would be at 19.5 degrees. But no. It and the entire Sidonia region, which is this other place where Hoagland claims there are pyramids and geometry that's important and other stuff, is centered at about 40.7 degrees north latitude. There are really, actually, nothing that significant nor especially unique on Mars at either 19.5 degrees north nor south latitude. On Jupiter... Hoagland's claim to the manifestation of hyperdimensional physics breaking into our reality is the Great Red Spot, which he says is centered at 19.5 degrees south latitude. Hey, a hit! Oh, wait. Sorry. He says it's at 22 degrees south latitude, which it is. 22 is not 19.5. 
Now, it also may bear mentioning that the cloud bands on Jupiter don't really start nor stop near 19.5 degrees latitude. The equatorial zone is between plus or minus 7 degrees. The north and south equatorial belts are about 7 to 18 degrees. Then there are a few more bands as you get to about 50 degrees north or south, and then you have a broad polar band. But none of these are at 19.5, and the Great Red Spot sits between two of these cloud bands. On Saturn, the claim to fame is apparently the north and south equatorial belts, which end at plus or minus 20 degrees, which Hoagland says are, quote, region of storms observed from Earth. Not really, though. I couldn't find any latitude ranges for cloud bands on Saturn, so I'll take Hoagland's word for it that this latitude range is where we see these equatorial bands, but we see storms all over Saturn. In fact, there's a really, really weird hexagonal storm at the Saturnian North Pole that starts at about 78 degrees north. And in 2011, or 2011, or 2-0-11, there was a giant storm in the northern hemisphere of Saturn. It was so large that it wrapped itself all the way around the planet and was producing over 10 lightning flashes per second at its peak. This was at 35 degrees north, not 19.5. Hoagland's claims for Uranus and Neptune are even weaker than his claims for Saturn, so I'm not really going to go into them. Which brings us back to Earth. Remember what we're after here. Hoagland claims that hyperdimensional physics manifests in our three-spatial-dimensional world at 19.5 degrees latitude on planets and other objects in the solar system. So at 19.5 degrees, according to Richard, we will see some very energetic disturbances. Now, without thinking or looking at his list, try to decide on some really big releases of energy or manifestations of energy on Earth. I'll give you a few seconds. All done? Okay. So, you'll probably think of things like volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, and if you did, that just proves that I can read minds. Those are pretty much the biggest natural energy releases that I can think of that really pack a wallop on Earth. Now, if you're thinking that Hoagland might go for more of a metaphysical thing, after all, he is in a sort of it's-complicated relationship with a homeopathist or a naturopathic physician, supposed physician. Uh, Hoagland, you know, you might think would think of things like, say, Stonehenge or Coral Castle, the Great Wall of China, the Sphinx or the Great Pyramid of Giza, Mesoamerican pyramids, Machu Picchu, the Nazca Lines, or Serpent Mounds. Or at least, those are the ones that I thought of when I closed my eyes and thought of this when writing. Oh, what about the Taj Mahal? Yeah, stuff like that. Sticking with the real things, and I mean the, the, you know, the natural phenomena, we'll first talk about earthquakes. Because earthquakes are not an infrequent claim of modern conspiracy people, I happen to already have all of the earthquake data from the USGS since 1900 on hand. Not even by any stretch of the imagination, there is any type of concentration of earthquakes near 19.5 degrees, south nor north of the equator. Uh, 
When limiting the data to magnitude 8 earthquakes and above, the concentrations are roughly 50 degrees north and at the equator. Same with about 7 magnitude and above. So, no earthquake concentrations at 19.5. Going to volcanoes. The largest volcanoes on Earth are supervolcanoes. Yellowstone is an example of a supervolcano, with the caldera itself being roughly 55 by 70 kilometers. I'll repeat that. The caldera itself, the mouth of the volcano, is over 50 kilometers across on its shortest dimension. The last eruption of Yellowstone was around 640,000 years ago, and it ejected roughly 1,000 cubic kilometers of rock, dust, and ash. Yellowstone is at 44.5 degrees north. Another supervolcano, Long Valley, is smaller and is at about 38 degrees north. Valles Caldera, 36 degrees north. The Taupo supervolcano is at 39 degrees south, while the Ira, or Aira, A-I-R-A, Caldera in Japan, is at about 32 degrees north. Meanwhile, the Lake Toba supervolcano is at 3 degrees north latitude, and it is the largest volcanic lake in the world. It last erupted about 74,000 years ago, and it ejected around roughly 2,800 cubic kilometers of material. That's a lot. It's the largest known explosive eruption on Earth in the last 25 million years, and there exists the Toba Catastrophe Theory that holds that the eruption had global consequences and severely bottlenecked the human population at the time to somewhere only around a thousand to a few hundred breeding pairs. Almost extinction. Hoagland's volcanic claim to fame, in contrast, is, quote, Hawaiian caldera at 19.6 degrees north, which he says is, quote, the largest shield volcano. Now, there are actually five volcanoes that make up the Big Island of Hawaii, with Mauna Loa being the largest. It's estimated to be the largest shield volcano on Earth by volume, estimated to be somewhere around 75,000 cubic kilometers of material. That's roughly 18,000 cubic miles. Its peak is a paltry 37 meters below its neighbor, Mauna Kea, on the Big Island. And it is at roughly 19.5 degrees north latitude. Could you consider this the first hit that Hoagland has over all of his other misses so far? Sure, I suppose. But I personally, if I'm looking for a big volcanic energy release, would go for the supervolcanoes over Mauna Loa any day, which is kind of like oozing stuff. You know, it oozes stuff constantly, but it doesn't really go through too many giant explosive periods where it shoots a thousand cubic kilometers of material into the air. It's kind of like the difference between a wound that sort of oozes blood versus lopping off an arm and having blood spurt out. There's a big difference. Let's move on to hurricanes. I initially made a blog post about this topic mid-last year, and I didn't really talk about hurricanes. Jimmy, in the comments to that blog post, responded saying, Hurricanes are born at 19.5 latitude. The cause of the storms on Earth is the Earth's rotation 
and heat transfer. Could a similar mechanism be the cause of solar storms at 19.5? Could be. Now, I'm not really sure if this discounts what I had written, since Jimmy appears to be saying that Earth's rotation is a viable mechanism to explain where hurricanes are as opposed to hyperdimensional physics. But we'll pretend that he disagreed with me just for fun. And he was also wrong about the whole solar storms originating at 19.5, and he's also wrong about hurricanes, which I'll get to in a few seconds. Wikipedia actually has some really, really cool summary images for every hurricane season in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans that I'll link to. I looked at both for the last few years and overlaid them on a map with latitude grids. Guess what? Most of the hurricanes originate at about 10 degrees north latitude, not 19.5. This agrees with UCAR, which is the National Center for Atmospheric Research website for kids, which states that they form between about 5 and 15 degrees latitude. Though a Google book result titled Hurricanes from the North Atlantic says that most are between 15 and 20 degrees north latitude. From all of these, at the very least, I think it's fair to say that the claim that hurricanes originate at 19.5 degrees north latitude is not correct. Which brings us to the more metaphysical claims which are not physical, they're metaphysical. And none of the ones that I mentioned are really centered at 19.5 degrees north or south latitude. For example, Nazca's at 15 degrees south, Coral Castle 25.5 north, Sphinx and Giza Pyramids 30 degrees north, Stonehenge 51 degrees north, not 19.5. Now we can introduce the idea of cherry-picking, which is something I brought up in episode 17 about Greg Braden. Now it's fairly trivial to show that Hoagland has missed a lot of things in the solar system that are fairly important that aren't at 19.5 degrees latitude. I already mentioned several, especially with Mars and some with Jupiter and some with Saturn. To name an example that I haven't brought up before, what about the geysers on Enceladus, or if you're British and don't really care about insulting old people, geysers on Enceladus. Enceladus is a moon of Saturn, and these geysers, or geysers, are very close to the South Pole, and they are an energetic release from the moon, probably the most energetic release that we have today. I've already named several things on Earth, and as on Mars, as I had said, Tharsis is concentrated at the equator. You also have a region of high magnetism on Mars south of about 50 degrees south latitude. Venus and Io are generally evenly distributed, covered with volcanoes. Although on Venus, we have something called the Maxwell Montes, which is the highest topographic feature on Venus and is a large mountain chain that's about 65.2 degrees north. Maxwell Montes is often called the only man on Venus, because besides being the tallest and biggest, you know, biggest tallest feature on the planet, is also the only feature named after a man. Draw whatever conclusions you may choose. I think that the claim of 19.5 degrees features is what we could very easily call cherry-picking, where you deliberately choose things to support your claim and ignore everything else. Now, you might be saying throughout this, okay, Stuart, you're being unfair. You know, it's at 19.6 or 19.3, 
that's really close to 19.5. And sometimes Richard has stated that there is a margin of error here and that 19.5 degrees is not exact. To quote from him, remember, we are not talking about precise longitude and latitude lines, but bands of activity as with any physical process. All right, perhaps fair game. The question then goes, how big is a band of activity according to Richard? Hoagland claims that the Tohoku, maybe, is that the pronunciation? It's also perhaps more popularly known as the Fukushima earthquake and tsunami in Japan last year in March of 2011 had hyperdimensional physics written all over it, as well as conspiracies and other things. The epicenter of the event was at 38 degrees 19 minutes north, 142 degrees 22 minutes east. Richard claimed that this is exactly twice his 19.5 degrees latitude, and the longitude was 120 degrees, or one-third of a circle, east of the Great Pyramid. For those of you who are non-Egypt-centered, he's talking about the Great Pyramid at Giza. Problem is that 2 times 19.5 is 39, not 38, and 120 degrees from the Great Pyramid is 151 degrees east longitude almost nine degrees off. So now Richard is saying that his stuff can be off by you know, eight or nine degrees and also can occur in multiples of 19.5. That means that his hyperdimensional physics affects more than half of the planet. If we're playing a game of name that logical fallacy, I would consider this among the Texas sharpshooter class. The name comes from a joke about a Texan who fires shots from a gun at the side of a barn, and then paints the target around the bullet holes. The bottom line is that this is not how science works. If you have a hypothesis, you need to have tests that can be done and would verify or disprove it. 19.5 degrees being where everything important and energetic happens in the solar system is easily falsified. If you then want to broaden your hypothesis to include something significant happening over more than, you know, 50% of any surface on the solar system, then you're no longer talking about something unique to your hypothesis. By including 50% of a surface, chance alone says that you're going to hit, to quote Hoagland, something wonderful. By way of feedback for this episode, we have some first some feedback on the last episode, on the magnetic pole shift. On my blog, I was corrected by Johan, J-O-H-A-N, you won, something like that, um, who pointed out that I mixed up the Curies. Last episode, I mentioned that if you heat rock up past a certain temperature, it would lose all of its magnetic field. I had said that this was known as the Curie Point, named after Marie Curie, who was a double Nobel Prize winner. I was mistaken. It was her husband, Pierre Curie, who made that particular discovery. It's kind of a pain to keep all the Curies straight when the husband-wife team won so many Nobel Prizes. The next bit of feedback is a clarification point related to two episodes ago, the episode of Help! The Sun, or Moon, is Moving! The clarification comes from Andrew, who posted in the comments on the podcast website that 
had to do with when I was talking about where the sun and the moon appear at different times during the year. The elevations that I was talking about in terms of the whole 90 degrees minus your latitude are the maximum elevation of that object in the sky, which would be where the sun or the moon is when it's crossing the meridian point. The meridian is the line that runs through the sky from due north to due south. I also met with a listener on a recent trip to Washington, D.C., and over dinner, I was able to explain this whole concept of where the sun and the moon appear and why they seem to move with a straw wrapper and a Parmesan cheese shaker. I explained it in the space of about 10 seconds. It's unfortunate, but sometimes these concepts are kind of ill-suited for audio. Yet again, I would like to relate a bit of iTunes feedback. This review comes from VampyCat in the U.S. store. The person has a much longer review than I want to read, or at least out loud on the podcast, but there was one part that I wanted to respond to. They said, I appreciate that the feedback is at the end of the podcast, and the puzzler, so that I can focus on the meat of the podcast without searching through to find something related to the topic. In response, the reason for that wasn't just random planning, it was by design. Since the model for my podcast was sort of skeptoid-based, I wanted to keep the idea and the topic fairly short. Hoagland ran a bit long, but he is a bit of a windbag, so anyway. Um, I put the main part of the show at the beginning so that anyone who's not interested in all this other stuff can just stop the podcast after the music that ends the main segment. Which brings us to the puzzler. A reminder that I'm soliciting ideas for a puzzler for the next episode on stellar scams about people selling star names or property on other moons or planets. If you have an idea for one, please send it to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. Also, remember the puzzler for the last episode, episode 25, is still open. By way of announcements... I'm going to be at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference from March 18th through the 24th, which is in the Woodlands, Texas. As in, the Woodlands is actually the name of the city in Texas. There will be a CosmoQuest meetup with me and Pamela Gay as well as other scientists at the Goose's Acre on Waterway Avenue on Wednesday, March 21st, 2012 at 7 p.m. It looks like it will last at least two hours since... Emily Lakdawala, maybe? Emily, from the Planetary Society, will be joining us at 8.30. I'll post a link to the show notes as it's being organized on meetup.com. Also, the Denver Skeptics have planned their sixth annual Skepticamp, which is a community-based and given conference on all topics skeptical. I'll provide a link to it also in the show notes. This year's will be held in Parker, Colorado, at the Parker Public Library on May 5th, and it will last all day. Well, 9.20 to 4.30. I'll be giving a talk that is preliminarily called Gaps You Must Ignore or Believe to Be a Young Earth Creationist, where GAPS stands for Geology, Astronomy, and Physics. Skeptic camps are usually fun, entertaining, and informative, and you can think of them sort of as much much cheaper versions of TAM, and also ones where you get to hear from people that you haven't heard over and over and over again through normal venues. 
Not that those people don't deserve to be heard, but other people deserve to be heard too. I'd also like to remind you that you can friend the podcast on Facebook or follow the podcast or whatever they call it. And also, I'm on Twitter under the Twitter handle pseudoastro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. That wraps up this topic for the 26th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information on this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website or funny fourth thing. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, or I suppose if you don't like it, feel free to write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends, family, and anyone else.